Welcome to Spotlight On, a new series produced by Excel, where we examine the technology shaping our world through conversations with the people building it. Daniel, welcome to Spotlight On. We're very honored to have you. This is a program where we talk about the technologies that are shaping our industry, and even more importantly, the great founders and people that are shaping it. So we're really, really excited to have you. Thanks, Rich. I'm super excited to be here and, uh, and to have this conversation with you. So we've known each other a little while now. It's, um, it's kind of amazing how one of the real joys of being in this business for me is getting a chance to work with founders like yourself for I think what will be decades of a business relationship and, and a personal friendship. And I, I really appreciate that, you know, with you and with Jonathan. Yeah, me too. I mean, we're going on nine years now, right? Since we first met in 2014 at YC Demo Day. It seems like just a couple of years, but yeah, I think it has been nine years and all the different stages as we were talking before about, you know, your life as well. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we just back all the way up? Because I think, you know, one of the amazing things about Silicon Valley and about the startup ecosystem is where people come from. And I know you have an incredible personal story. So just describe me a little bit about your family. Where did you grow up? What were your influences and uh, the journey of how you ended up you know, here in California? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in France, born and raised in France. Uh, you can hear through my accent. Mm -hmm. My parents are immigrants. So they actually uh, came in the 80s to France from Romania and Syria. Right. And they're a big influence for me. I say they're my inspiration. They're, they were doctors, but they had to work extremely hard to make it in France and integrate and learn French. And How and, old were they when there. they came from? They, came were, they were in their 30s. The so 30s. they were in their 30s. They were still dead to study med school twice because the degree would not be, you right. know, accepted, uh, accepted right. in France. So right. they were in their 30s, even early 40s. And I would still, I would see them as a kid still like passing exams and working really hard in addition to being, you know, doctor assistants and interns. Uh, so right. they are my motivation and inspiration. So that was my childhood in France. Um, really grateful to my parents and my sister and I have really grown up in France with good public schools and, and right. a great system. So that's, that's where we started. And then I went to college in Switzerland, mm -hmm. um, not very far on the French part of Switzerland. Always wanted to be an engineer, always like building computers, tinkering, I like math, physics, things like that. And then, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of robotics. I wanted to go and build robots and get into robotics. And uh, I've done some of that in college and, and, and around college. How did you end up in the United States? Um, so when I was in Switzerland, Switzerland's a bit more international. And in robotics, like the innovators, I was studying robotics, like silicon technology. So for me, the dream was more in the US, maybe companies like Intel. At right. some point I was like, oh, I, I wanted to work at Intel. Um, so I was a bit more focused on the hardware side. Right. And most of the leading companies were American companies and, right. and tech companies. Um, and then I came to Silicon Valley in 2010. I got an internship at NASA Ames working in the robotics lab. Right. And so that's when I landed in the in the Was Bay this area. the Mars rover project? Yeah, or? yeah, like Mars rovers, prototypes and AI navigation algorithms. I worked on that. And that's kind of where I switched from hardware to software. I realized like the future is software, everything. Hardware were kind of the older companies. Yep. And and software was eating the world, including robotics. Most of the innovation was through the software and through early AI. So so you were a NASA researcher, you know, working on robotics, this Mars Rover project. When did you decide to jump out and try your hand at the startup world and 
you went to a company, I believe, before starting Checker uh, that that helped create the inspiration for Checker after leaving NASA. Yeah, yeah. So, so NASA was great, but you know, NASA is more almost like academia. It's quite slow. You work on space projects for ten plus years. Only one in ten projects ever makes it to space. So you have to be like really passionate and patient, which I was not. Um, I like doing I like, <laughs> yeah, like doing I've new things and, and learning things. So and then I discovered the whole startup world, and so I was like, wow, you can be an engineer and jump from healthcare to software for businesses to you know automotive. Like you can work in any industry. Did that feel risky to you to leave this very safe, you know, I'm sure very fascinating job, but as you say, probably slower at NASA than the startup world. Yeah. What, well, you didn't think about it. You've no, taken the immigrant risk before your parents had taken the immigrant risk, so it yeah. wasn't that big of a deal. I was an unpaid researcher, so it was okay. not. It felt safe actually to get a real job and uh, and and you know be paid for for my work. Yeah. So and I don't know. I was like twenty something. So right. I, no I attachments yet. No, no. attachments. I was uh, excited by the adventure, and so I I joined the startup in LA first. Right. Uh, that's where I met my co-founder Jonathan. We became best friends. Uh-huh. That startup was early and 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 failed. And then I moved to another startup in the Bay Area. Right. And that was the leave the last right. uh, the last work uh, job I had before before we started Checker. And that's where we had the idea for Checker. Tell me a little bit about the founding idea for Checker. How did you and Jonathan come up with the idea? And uh, tell us about those early days of how it got going. Yeah, so when we were engineers, Jonathan and I, my co-founder in the same company, so we were working together um, at Delive, which was an on-demand delivery company. We were building all parts of the software. We were building the driver mobile app for drivers to get orders and go pick them up and deliver packages to to customers. Sort of like an Instacart. Yeah, like, Instacart a, like an become, early right? Instacart, DoorDash. Right. It was the very early days of the on-demand economy. And so... Uh, as part of this app, we're struggling to hire enough drivers. Mm-hmm. And one of the bottlenecks in the hiring process for drivers was the background check step. Right. It was taking long, it was manual, it was outside the system. So my CEO at the time tasked me to go find a better background check vendor, something maybe with an API we could integrate to right. streamline the onboarding flow for, for drivers. And how did you find those partners or suppliers at the time? And yeah, so how many of them even had an API in, in the way we think about it? So today? I just went on the internet, I Googled background checks, background checks APIs. I found a few vendors, but I was surprised that they were not really software companies. They were very kind of old school manual process companies and they didn't have APIs or they had like a very old XML API that was confidential. I was like outraged as a developer. It was still, you know, it was 2014. They were like things like Stripe and AWS and Google Maps. They were open APIs everywhere. So it just didn't, the, the existing incumbents just didn't feel modern to you. They just no. were old. They, they were, yeah, they were old, more like enterprise and did not even want to work with our startup back then. Right. They were like, you're too, sm- too much of a startup. We work with big enterprise companies. Maybe in six months, if you're bigger and wait in line, we'll give you access to implement you as an API customer. Right. And so that was frustrating. And so I said to Jonathan, like, we can build something better than that. Yeah, yeah. And you went through Y Combinator, which was a great experience, as uh, as you've said to me multiple times, right? Yeah, it, it was really great. I was already a Y Combinator fan, even back in Europe. I was reading everything, Paul Graham's essays, and I was like, that's that's a great route. You can go from being an engineer to being a founder, yeah. that's the dream. And so big fan of Y Combinator. I went to different events 
and eventually we applied and, and, and we got in with yeah. this idea. But we actually met for the first time at a traditional demo day. And I remember uh, watching your and Jonathan's presentation and being so impressed, but we had not ever met or had any interaction prior to that. And yeah, no. now it's been nine years. So. I like to tell people that the way we met was almost like speed dating. Yeah, It was like speed dating with hundreds of investors in that big room at the computer museum. Yeah. And we had a lot of interest. So a lot of different investors would come to me. And there was even, in, I think, a Chinese investor who came and said, I will write you a $20,000 check if you shake my hand now, like right, in, right. The, in the room. And I was like, I don't know, you know? Right. So I, I and I knew nothing about the VC landscape and right. who are the good investors. And so I always tell people that I got really lucky in that speed dating to meet you. And, and it's been a fantastic, uh, you know, partnership. So Daniel, let's just talk about the early days of how you got started in your first customers and what segment you focused on. Yes, so we built the, the product that we needed in our previous job. So really um, automated background check API to streamline the hiring um, of, um, of, of delivery drivers. Yep. And so we're lucky that in 2014, it was the early days of the on-demand economy. Lots of startups were funded. It was like Uber for X, you know, right. in every category. Right. Um, Uber itself was very early. It was only doing Uber Black back then. The black cars only, no ride sharing. Right. Um, but it was a big category and a lot of the startups were funded in Y Combinator. Right. So one thing I love about Y Combinator, it's you can find your early customers in right. that network. So so Instacart, DoorDash, these companies existed, but they were small. Yeah, the, they existed the and they launched, I think, one year before we launched. Right. So it shows you they were in their first year, right. but raising a lot of money and growing really quickly. And so we got them as early customers, which really helped us get product market fit. How did you convince these founders that, you know, this is a pretty, as we agree now, a very important security and trust and safety step to keeping your service safe. How did you convince, you know, Tony at DoorDash or the Uber folks to trust a small startup like Checker was, you know, in those early days? Yeah. So the good news is they were also small startups, right. a little bit bigger, but not much more. And it, it was, it was, it was quite easy. I was really lucky, like literally. I would just email people and say, we're building a background check API. Right. We know it's painful. And literally people would say, oh my God, that's the biggest problem I have. Please come. Right. And we go to the meeting and they like literally say, welcome. Right. We hate our current solution. What you guys are building sounds like exactly what we need. Right. Um, it was quite unreal. It's not usually how it happens. Now yeah. when I'm launching new products, I, we have to hustle much more. But there was really an acute problem for, for most customers who yeah. would just welcome us and, and want to try the product ASAP. You know, I, I think as you described the story of how you came upon the problem and how you built the company around a problem that you had actually tried to work on yourself when you were the customer, I think that that experience, that intuition, you know, makes it so much more likely to succeed than when yeah. one tries to dream up the idea off a clean sheet of paper. You are solving a problem that you felt yourself. Yeah. And I think that's I, I see that often, advantage. especially for B2B companies, right. oftentimes the founders have some kind of unfair knowledge about the problem and they experience it. So that's what, you know, that's how they know what first problem to build, you know, deeply right. because they are the customer. So I've seen that, yeah, often it's a good pattern for B2B businesses. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the mission of Checker. And I know you thought very deeply about this with Jonathan, uh, what Checker stands for. Why don't you just talk about what is the vision and the mission of what you want Checker to achieve? And then we'll talk about some of the things that come after that. Yes, yes. So when we started the company, we didn't have a mission. Our mission was to 
solve customer problems, to right. build a great product for customers. Right. Um, a, a good starting mission is to succeed, you yeah. know, and so to <laughs> so, solve so real we problems. To, yeah, to help customers and, and have a product that, that's useful. So so we started that, and but as, as we were doing the first year of background checks and started to process background checks, talk to consumers and job candidates who are going through the process, talking to customers and seeing how they're making hiring decisions, um, we realized a few things. So first, of course, background checks, everyone and all customers were convinced about the value of safety, um, the value of like understanding people's background, building trust through that data. It right. was a standard part of the hiring process, but it was very skewed towards finding the bad guys and rejecting them. That was kind of the the only thinking about background checks. And the whole industry was pretty focused on fear. Like right. the marketing tactics where there might be a criminal in your business, you have to find them, otherwise you are at huge liability risk and safety risk. Right. Which is really exaggerated in a way. Mm -hmm. And we realized that it's, it's not that black and white. There's actually thousands of job applicants who yes, don't have a perfect background, but extremely motivated and, 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 and ready to work. Yes. And so we felt already in the very days that's a big imbalance in the process. Right. And that leaves, you know, thousands of people on the side of the roads who, um, you know, many of them have a minor crime, have a crime or mistake that was a long time ago that's not relevant to the job anymore. So we, but, but the way the background check process is set up is as a customer, right. you know, if you get two candidates and one has a long list of flags and the other one is like nothing, you're just going to do the pragmatic decision of moving on with this simpler candidate. Yes. And so the product was also not set up to, to show you this, this spectrum and balance. Right. So, so quite early on, we said our mission should be to be different from the rest of the industry and make this industry better because we believe with technology, we can improve fairness and we can, you know, change this process to not be binary and help businesses decide who are the best candidates for them and we already knew that there's going to be a lot more people who are actually being rejected, who could be a great fit for businesses, and we could change that balance over time. Excellent. So, so that's how we set our mission to build a fair future, um, which will help, you know, through a better product to give opportunities to millions of people to, to get great jobs. To build a fairer future. Uh, yes, ultimately. to build a fair future. And by changing some of those decisions and, and helping customers you know, sift through the different cases and data, actually that, because we have a lot of scale, that enables millions of people who are rejected to now get a shot at yeah. opportunities, um, which is really fantastic. It is fantastic. How many people are we talking about that have something in their backgrounds yeah. that could otherwise prevent them from getting so, a job? So, so now if we look at last year, we've, we do, at Checker, we do tens of millions of background checks a year. So we're getting yeah. a pretty big scale. Um, and... Last year alone, there's 2 million people who had a f some kind of flag that went through our system. Right. But that at the end of the day, the employer decided to move forward for 2 million, 2 people. million people. And what do you think it is in the overall U.S. population? Like how many people in the overall U.S. workforce have some sort of uh, flag or potential flag it, in the background? It, it, it's a lot, right? Because the flag can be as simple as... Uh, you know, speeding violations sometimes, a DUI, right. uh, a minor infraction like possession of marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, those are, you know, very high volume. In the US, there's, um, you know, one in three Americans has some kind of flag of violation. One in three Americans, yes. right. Yeah. So if you don't help create a system where uh, people understand how to treat that fairly, 
one in three Americans you know, are, could be excluded at risk or of being excluded. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes when that is not a problem at all for the business. Yes. But you have yes. to put yourself in the shoes of the recruiters and the HR departments who are getting right. thousands of resumes and need to make decisions fast. So that's where we come in and we try to help them create rules and criteria that's you know, tailored for their business that allows them to to uh, streamline some of the decisions. You know, to this point about fairness and the mission of Checker, you have been a huge supporter and really evangelist as a company, you know, for the concept of fair chance hiring. Can you just talk a little about what is fair chance hiring and what are we actually doing to, to support that cause? Yes, yeah, so fair chance hiring, also sometimes called second chance hiring, uh-huh. is giving second chances to people. So it's basically helping someone who has a criminal record and you know interviewing them building trust and then giving them a a job giving them a chance and so we've been a huge fan of that we've partnered with many nonprofits uh, i myself went to prison uh, educational systems and and, and right. programs to better understand how people are getting trained and and released from prison yeah. um and I met fantastic people i met some of the best most motivated you know warmest people i've ever met and it opened my eyes. I was like, wow, those people, I'd love to hire yes. uh, them in my company. Yes. And so we did. We started by, you know, to hire some of the best of the best. Uh, so in Checker, in Checker itself. Yes. We started to hire a few people in some of our teams to kind of onboard them and train them to work in tech. And they've been some of our highest performers. Because if you give someone a chance um, who's been rejected hundreds and hundreds of time, and their goal going out of prison is to turn their life around to prove to the entire world, to their family, that they can be a better person than what they've known for in the past. And so if you align that self-motivation with a job in tech, that can, you know, create some of the best, you know, win-win situation and and most motivated uh, employees. I think it's very counterintuitive. There's lots of bias and fear around it. But when you actually meet and interview the people, it it doesn't mean hiring everyone with a record. It means like, you know, giving people a chance to interview and to learn their story and and, and do they own their mistake and are ready to move forward. And many people are. And so then um, it's been a success for us at Checker. And now we try to bring that success to other businesses, to our customers, because there's still a huge shortage of talent in so many industries. Yes. And again, it's one in three Americans. So um, it's it's good for the economy and for the job market yes. to explore um, these opportunities. And we as a company help companies and businesses benefit from that. So, so Daniel, when you first built the Checker product, you know, part of it was a modern API as opposed to sort of the manual, sort of stodgier companies that were in the industry before. But you also thought a lot about building machine learning and AI into the system. Talk a little bit about where you started on the product as it relates to AI, and then we'll talk about the evolution to a lot of the discussion in the market, you know, today. Yes, yes. So um, I've always been a, an AI fan. Like even at NASA, I was working on computer vision algorithm and navigation, auto- autonomous navigation on Mars. Yeah. Um, so I love AI, but I'm also like not just the technologist. At the end of the day, I we build products to solve customer problems. Right. And sometimes you don't need fancy technology to solve a customer problem. The customer yes. just wants an email uh, right. button, you know, like right. simple yes. things. Um, but for us in background checks, the big problem is to build an accurate background check. You have to collect a lot of data. It's actually right. very complex. And the data is very messy and unorganized. Right. So um, in order to make sense of the data so that customers can actually read and understand the background checks, right. we had to use AI to classify and organize the data. 
Right. For example, in the U.S., every single county and state has different language for the different crimes. Right. So, you know, theft is not called the same in different states. Right. And it has codes and everything. So to organize this data, we built um, an NLP classifier. So we basically right. took millions of records right. and we built categories. So we can say, this is a DUI, right? right? Or this is theft, or this is possession of a gun. Right. And so we created those categories and that allowed us to then create a product where customers can say, I don't care about possession of marijuana, but right. that was not possible in the past because it was just free text that you couldn't really organize. Right. So that was our first application of AI to make sense of the background check data. For so, so technically it was a classifier. It was, it was a, a classifier. It, was, it would organize and yep. classify yep. Uh, information that otherwise would be extremely hard to, to categorize by hand. Yes, exactly. So we used AI, you know, more traditional AI, uh, you know, back in the days before Gen AI was invented to do classification of the background check data. Also, another problem was have is to do the name matching right. to make sure that this record with a few partial pieces of information is belonging to that person. Very important, right. of course. And right. the accuracy in the industry was quite low. So we also used AI to have the best um, accuracy on name matching to records. Right. So those are two simple use cases. You can use AI for many, many problems, right. but those are two early use cases where we built AI to improve the accuracy and the quality of background checks. The greatest area of focus these days, at least in the press, in the tech press, is around generative AI. But this, the, the application of how Checker built its first product was really about the classification and matching going and the ability to synthesize across millions of records to find meaning, not not necessarily on the generative basis. But I think the world has really changed last year, you know, yes. since ChatGPT and engineer algorithms, uh, which I think is exciting. If we if we look to our customers and our products, our customers are mostly in HR, in recruiting, in yeah. operations teams. Um, the whole recruiting process and background check process is regulated. Accuracy and compliance extremely important. So I would say before Gen AI. Um, there were a lot of fears in, in recruiting technology and HR tech around AI, right? I think everyone's seen those articles of like, is AI bringing bias into the hiring process yes. by automating decisions away from humans without knowing how it's done? Is that going to lead to more discrimination? Which right. I think are, are, are you know valid concerns uh, right. definitely for the industry. But I do think since Gen AI happened, there's been some, some change. It's like so powerful and every business, every department has to at least explore how can that, how this technology can improve um, the, the business. And so with customers, I'm, I'm seeing more openness to AI, but we have to be careful of what are the applications, right? Yes. Like, um, but like you see, you can use the AI not to make the hiring decision for you, um, but to, for example, better understand information about the candidates. You can even ask the AI, hey, find bias in my recruiting process. Oh, interesting. Look at, yeah. you can ask AI anything, right? Like right. you could say, hey, help me improve and find bias. Right. Um, you know, find discrepancies in compensation across employees in the company. Right. Or uh, look at the interview records and, and, and tell me if there's bias of gender or of race in some of the interviews happening. So if, if I play that back to you, right, in, in many ways, you think that AI can be used to ask questions of your own data and try to find both the good things, but even maybe some of the biases 
that might be embedded in even our hiring processes at Checker. Is, is that roughly right? Yeah, I think AI can be used for anything you want it to. And so there are some dangerous areas. And in recruiting, we have to be very mindful of, is there bias in the process? Where is the data coming from? Right. How has it been trained? And there is bias in the internet. And Genera has been you know, trained on the entire internet. Right. And it's just this human bias because humans are biased. Right. Um, so I think we're going to have to be more careful in hiring and compliance areas on how we use AI. We're going to have to really test and confirm, you know, that it's working, it's not doing unintended things. Quality reviews are going to be very important. Yeah. But I think there are lots of exciting applications. Yeah. Um, for us, for example, we are, we're doing two things in AI in our company. So first, we enable the whole company to play with AI right. and see and tinker and see what's possible in marketing, in finance, in product, in engineering right. to improve productivity. We did that by... You know, I think there's a lot of fear in companies around privacy. Um, is your IP protected? Right. Um, is your customer information not going out to the AI, you know, algorithms? Right. So we put in place different layers of protection so that our sensitive data does not go out. Right. And those tools can be used, you know, safely within the company. Yeah. But then we really enable, and I want to give kudos to our CFO, Naeem, who's been really leading that task. Right. It's Naeem is shocked. Naomi Shark is our CFO and, and, and he's huge on AI. And he enabled the whole company to really play with AI in the very early days. And it's been great because otherwise people can't see the innovation right. and the opportunities. And, and we, we have a lot of great use cases. Our marketing team is leveraging extensively to be more productive. We're testing Copilot with our engineers. There's lots of great internal applications already. What do you think are the most likely candidates to help Checker's productivity, like in terms of the use of, of AI for Checker? Yeah, I mean, internally, there's use cases, like I said, marketing and writing copy and, and helping right. you write better, faster has been great. We use it, you know, to review um, our internal business document and strategy. I use it sometimes to draft emails or, or documents, and then you edit it, but it right. gives you a boilerplate really quickly right. and can review your writing, make it tighter. Um, so everything around writing is, is working really well. And then I think the big opportunity, which we don't know yet how productive it's going to be, but like it's around engineering right. and helping write code, helping write tests, helping doing code reviews. If we can add, you know, 10, 20% of engineering productivity, it's, it's incredible for a product company like us. So, so you mentioned, you know, two maybe possibly counterbalancing things. So one, you know, you're a believer as I am in AI is a huge, um, help to automation, to productivity, makes companies more efficient, makes our customers more efficient. At the same time, I think you acknowledge a valid concern people might have about bias built into the AI. If you're a founder or you're a CEO of a midsize or even larger company, and you obviously want the productivity benefits, but you have uh, the questions about how to make sure you manage any bias that exists, what, what advice would you give that founder or, or CEO? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just to be self-aware and going into it eyes open. Like, you know where bias can and or might already be applying, right. especially around like hiring people or making decisions on people's performance. That That's where, you know, I think we have the most sensitive bias around HR and recruiting. Right. So if there is AI around that process, I'd be very cautious mm -hmm. and, and kind of A-B testing it to make sure it, it's not adding you know too much bias. But that's very narrow. I think if you then break down all of the business processes, in, including interview and recruiting processes, 
I think you can apply AI kind of tactically in different areas. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think what's dangerous is when it's a black box and you don't really think about it. Right. Like for example, we use, hear a lot about like using AI to scan through resumes. Right. Um, if you just throw 10,000 resumes and say, which one should I look at without really thinking about the criteria, that's that's kind of dangerous and likely to to yes. put you know bias in your process. Where would you like to see Checker advance its mission? You know, even beyond the businesses you're in today. Like, where would you aspire to go? You know, beyond the um, the growth that you've already had so far. Yes. Yeah, so so we love solving these complex compliance, HR, people problems for customers. Right. Sometimes it's a bit boring compliance, and it's not the sexiest field. But we actually love taking software and technology to right. take those hard problems and make them automated and a delight for customers. Right. And, and customers love it when we do that hard work for them and it's easy. So we've done it in background checks and now we also love to do APIs and embeddable products and software. And so we're looking at the other parts of the hiring process, right. especially for the flexible workforce, right? Like for gig economy, freelance, uh, remote work, we want to continue to build infrastructure products to automate some of this hard, you know, HR building blocks. Right. So we're looking at, we launched a product called Checker Onboards, mm -hmm. which helps uh, automate and simplify and have a great experience for the onboarding experience for, you know, job applicants. Um, we launched a product called Checker Pay mm -hmm. to help 1099 workers, gig, gig workers be paid instantly every right. day mm -hmm. um, with a very nice experience as well. And so those are the type of new products we're launching to to continue to build, you know, infrastructure for the workforce. When you look at all of the money that's going into Anthropic or OpenAI, ChatGPT, or Google Bard, uh, can you handicap for us your prediction of is this a market that will be owned? You know, these underlying LLM models will it be owned by big tech. Will open source win? It's a tough question. But what is your prediction about how this AI landscape will evolve? You know, over the next ten years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about the technology. I mm -hmm. think large language models are awesome. I think also like now I'm even getting more excited about small language models. Because the small large, language models, say yeah, more about so, that. So large language model is like ChatGPT. It's trained on the entire internet. You can do everything, but it also can do too much in a way, and mm -hmm. it's inaccurate. So small language model is kind of taking the same approach, but building smaller models that are very specialized mm -hmm. to do one task or one category of task. Right. So for example, to do customer support for your company and answer all of the questions to your customers. Because right. you don't want that chat to start debating philosophy with your customers right. or, or you know, or saying the wrong thing. Right. So I think more specialized model, and I'm, I'm learning this from like Databricks and other companies, mm -hmm. I think that's very exciting technology. So purpose-built, purpose small language models. Yeah, because of the, I mean, the, and that makes sense because the LLMs are very expensive to run, right. very complex, kind of a black box. Right. And so in business, we want to solve some specific customer problems. We don't want to solve the whole internet knowledge. Right. Um, and so I'm pretty excited about this technology. I think it, it has a lot of legs. I don't know who's gonna win. I think it's overhyped right now, like many technology mm. cycles. Yep. There's like too much craziness. Who knows, maybe one startup wins, one big company. I, I can't predict. Right. I think it's also a bit too overhyped even for regular businesses. Right. Like you just put AI, you have to put AI in your features. Right. And I'm trying to be pragmatic again, like AI is a good technology as long as it solves a real customer problem. Um, so, so it's a bit overhyped, which is okay. Yeah. I think it's good for innovation. Um, 
but I think it's ba- it's good to focus back on like cust- what customers need because customers, you know, they just want you to help them, you know, improve their life, whether it's AI or, or not. You know, to, to draw the analogy to AI, I know that the first startup you worked at after NASA was a mobile company. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, mobile, uh, it has massive impact on our economy and the tech industry in the medium and long run. But in the short run, there were a lot of spikes of hype that didn't, you know, the reality never quite lived up to the initial hype in some of those yeah. categories. And who on mobile? It's more like Apple and right. Google. And- well, until Android and iOS and the iPhone came along, it was, there were a lot of, of cycles where it didn't quite live up to its potential. Mm-hmm. But in the medium and long run, yeah. <clears throat> it has had dramatic yeah. impact. And I think it's it often the time, right? The early days, we get kind of overexcited about the potential. Right. Then there's a few years of reality check that it's not fully ready. Right. And then over 10 plus years, it, it becomes mainstream. Yes. Um, so yeah, that sounds like we've seen that a bit with crypto and Web3 and many things before. Do you think the open source models, when we're playing around with the technology, do you think the open source models are, vi- are viable competitors to these expensive but very powerful, you know, open AI and maybe anthropic or... We're not sure yet. It's just hard. It's so early. It's hard to know how these. I, I think the the cost is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, even though OpenAI is very expensive, like yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's it's just so big, and it, it's because the the cost of good swords are really expensive. Like mm-hmm. those those you know GPUs and the data centers you need are insane. Yeah. Um, so that's gonna get commoditized and and lower cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the cost will drive. I, I think right now I hear more and more companies who are rather not use the out of the box at scale because it's too expensive. Yeah. And so maybe use open source plus other, you know, part of the stack to optimize cost. Yeah. Um, if it becomes super cheap and mainstream on AWS on OpenAI and everything, I'm sure we'll move more to using those APIs and, um, and, and not run it as much in house. Yeah. Right now it looks like people are going pretty deep themselves because of that cost, cost or specialization you know, training the algorithm on their the data versus yeah. being worried about feeding the the big yeah. machine. Do you mean it's expensive for OpenAI or that the licenses you know, for, are expensive for the customer for you to run? Uh, yeah, for the customer. For the customer, I mean, because it's right. cents per API. You know, it's like a fraction of cents per API core. Right. But if you use it on millions of customers on questions, it can right. it can blow up pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. And so that's that's what I'm talking about. The, right. the, right. the cost to the customer, which I'm sure is gonna go down quickly. As we talk about this AI trend, which is a huge wave that's sweeping the tech industry and the sort of broad awareness in society about this, does anything about that concern you or do you feel pretty comfortable that we're all evolving this technology in a thoughtful way? Technologists will always go as fast as possible to evolve the technology. Um, there are some people thinking about like, hey, is this dangerous and risky? Are we going to have you know AI r- run the world and it's going to become like Matrix and 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 slave humans into it? Um, but but people will still push the boundary to until it starts to become dangerous. Actually, so 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 I I don't know. I still feel like we're far from that. Right. Um, but but it is really an impressive technology that we don't know exactly how how far it's gonna go when we look at the, the development. Um, I, you know what what I'm more worried about is kind of like the technological divides, and mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything we can yeah. do about it. But like technology is just moving so fast every single year, and we're fortunate to be technologists and we keep up with everything. But if you look at everyone else in the world, it's just very hard for people to keep up. 
to retrain themselves into the skills you need to compete in this new world. Yes. And so that that technological divide just kind of keeps accelerating. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's just AI or not, but AI is like really going even faster. So I hope AI will help people are also like train themselves, educate, improve productivity. Um, but yeah, I'm a bit more worried about like the impact on on people who can't keep up with all of this technological change. Yes. Are you worried about some aspects of AI in the future? You know, I, I, um, I'm still trying to make up my mind is the truth. I think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. You know, I think um, you think about where we are in the American economy and even some of the demographic issues across the world where software and AI are probably the greatest chance at improving productivity. And that productivity is key of a household income per capita, which leads to a better life for people, for humans. And so I think, um, you know, I think the reason why you and I work in the technology industry is in addition to being interesting and fun is because I think it has a major impact on how our economy moves forward and how people ultimately live a better life. On the flip side, I have some of the same questions that you just brought up around a digital divide where there are people that will be beneficiaries of this new technology and there's going to be some level of job displacement and some level of not, not so positive impact. And so... You know, I think things that you've really been a thought leader on, like fair chance hiring, are attempts to try to reach across that divide. But I, I think we're going to need even more of those efforts as you know, new technologies like AI become even more pervasive. So I, I have a lot of optimism, but frankly, I have a lot of similar concerns to you know to what you bring up. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree, Rich, and I think we we'll have to do our best we can from our jobs, our companies yeah. to to improve that and, and reduce that gap over time. Daniel, you've been the founder and CEO of Checker for the last nine years. What are your aspirations for the next 10 years? What are your, do you want to see Checker as we continue to grow and, and move forward? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been an amazing journey for me. I'm so grateful for the last nine years and the team we have. Um, it still feels like an early startup, so I really enjoy working with customers, working with our employees, launching new products. And so for us, we're going to, kind of continue to multiply ourselves as a startup, launch yeah. new startups, new products, yeah. you know, uh, especially we love that problem we're working on around the workforce. It's great when you can have technology that has like a direct impact on jobs, on hiring, on, on the quality of jobs that people have. So um, yeah, we're excited over the next few, 10 years, you know, we, we, we will continue to build the company to be a leader in the space. We're going to bring that fairness mission that we have in all of our products, all of our customer conversations. And so, um, yeah, so much opportunity ahead. We, we are really excited. Well, Daniel, I've said this to you multiple times, but, you know, I thank you and Jonathan for letting us be a small part of your journey. It's really been a pleasure. It's just the beginning still. We got a long, long ways to go, but, you know, we're honored to be one of your partners. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. It's been so fun. Next week, Spotlight On will focus on trust, safety, and regulation in AI. We'll bring you two episodes. The first features Glenn Wise, the co-founder and CEO of Sender, in discussion with Excel's Sarah Idelson. And the other features Kate Parker, the chief operating officer at Transcend, alongside Excel's Vas Natarajan. AI is being used across almost every single threat vector today. We've seen real examples mm -hmm. of, of how AI can be used for harm, which we need to take pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. There will be harms mm -hmm. involved. There will be issues and worries and challenges. Businesses are now starting to wake up to this notion that it's time to to get this stuff handled. How do we make sure that our chatbot doesn't leak sensitive data? 
out to an end user? How do we make sure our chatbot doesn't put out information that is actually just like at its standard core, not something that it should be doing? 